welcome to the Falcon Around Podcast, the Carl Falk Podcast. I'm Carl. Glad to have you aboard. Episode four, we're available everywhere. We're like the cool kids. iTunes, we're available on YouTube, BuzzFeed. Make sure you check it out because we are Buzzsprout, not BuzzFeed, Buzzsprout. So make sure you check it out, pass it on. If you like what you hear, obviously hit me up on Twitter if there's something you want me to talk about. I definitely am interested in that, especially in this day and age of limited topics. Although every week when I sit down to do this, it seems as though the topics just seem to make themselves available for discussion. There is no sports going on, but yet there is so many things in the sports world that I feel are worthy of discussion. It's interesting how the media has adjusted to the lack of no sports. Basically, uh, to quote Scott Van Pelt of ESPN, ESPN has become ESPN classic over the last couple of weeks. They're showing great games from back in the day in many different sports. I actually watched the Mets-Braves game from 2001, the first pro sporting event held in New York City after 9-11, a huge Mike Piazza home run in that game. It was one of those games that if you saw, if you remember, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, the emotion in the stadium that night. We were a broken country after 9-11, and that was one of those sparks that helped rekindle our nation. And I think as we go through this coronavirus, there will be an event like that, something like that. When we get back to our normal lives, something's going to happen that's going to allow us to see that sports and life is back to normal. So it was pretty cool watching that. And it's been cool to watch the different games and how they were covered, how they were played, how they were approached in so many different ways. We've changed sports recently in many, many ways. And we're going to continue to do that. The NFL has made a decision to change their playoff format. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But the decision that the NFL has made so far that's astounding to me is the one that they're going to continue the NFL draft as regularly scheduled. It's to be held on April 23rd. As I record this, it's April 2nd. That means three weeks from today, there's going to be an NFL draft. Three weeks from today, we're all still going to be basically on lockdown. We're all in quarantine. We're all not allowed, unless we're essential, to go to our jobs, to live our lives. We're encouraged to stay home. The NFL went ahead with free agency at a time when many people didn't think they should. And for a few days, it gave us all, as sports fans, something to discuss, something to look forward to. Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay. We can talk about that. The Bills make the big trade for Stephon Diggs. Obviously, locally, that was a huge story. There are many things that came out of that that were positive. It took our mind off the fact that there were no sports. But the NFL draft is a little bit different. Teams do a ton of research into players. And yet, still, if you start looking at the draft over the last couple of years or in its history, you start looking at the top end of the draft, and you'll see there are busts left and right, especially at the quarterback position. There are players drafted just a few years ago that already 
we can look at and say that that, that player is not somebody who's ever going to make it. And because of that, this is the most inexact science that there is in sports, in my opinion. We all know that this is a good picker. That's a good pick. And then when we watch as time goes by, we realize that we have no idea what we're talking about. All we do is we listen to the Mel Kuypers and Todd McShays of the world get an opinion on what they think, and then we formulate our opinion off of that. Well, the NFL draft is a lot about the person that's being picked and a lot about the team and the situation that person is going to. And I'll, I'll use Josh Rosen as an example. Josh Rosen is a guy who was selected in the 2018 draft, the same draft that, of course, Josh Allen was selected in. Many people in that draft or before that draft thought that Rosen was going to be the most pro-ready quarterback of the five that were taken in the first round. Lamar Jackson, of course, has been the best through the first two years. Baker Mayfield had a great rookie year, and the second year was is the exact opposite. It was a terrible second year. Sam Darnold has been injured. He's in a bad situation and a bad franchise. And frankly, I don't believe he's shown a whole lot of improvement. He's the same quarterback he was at USC, which at times is very good. At other times, it's what, what was that throw? Josh Allen has shown the ability to improve from year one to year two. He's shown an athleticism we didn't know he had. He's also shown that he's still wildly inaccurate at times and at times makes a boneheaded play here and there. But he's also shown he's a leader and, and a player that the Bills franchise is certainly going to be happy to have as the face of their franchise. These are the things that franchises can learn about players that they won't this year because they don't get the face-to-face meeting time. They don't get to re- examine the player physically if there's a nagging injury. Think of a guy like Tua Tugavaiola from Alabama. The biggest question about Tua may not be his ability to play, though I do have some questions about that, but his ability to be healthy and stay healthy. This year's draft, the teams don't get to meet with the players and examine them. There's a lot of FaceTime video, a lot of Skype, Zoom, all the different apps that we all use now. That's going on a lot, and you get to talk to players, but you don't get that face-to-face contact. It's different. And because of that, the teams are at a serious disadvantage. The country is going to sit back and go, why are they having this draft? The NFL is going to look at it and say, well, because we can. And that's kind of the NFL's attitude right now while the rest of the sports world has shut down. And that attitude has permeated through their upcoming schedule. The schedule release has been pushed back. That'll now come out in mid-May at this point, though I don't think it will. The schedule is something that I think as this lockdown, as our new lives become the new normal, happen, it's going to be more and more in flux. The NFL is hell-bent on playing a 16-game schedule this year, a complete and full 16-game schedule. The likely play some games without fans in attendance. They'll do whatever they can to make sure they fulfill their commitment to their television partners. The television partners will allow the teams to stay 
above the red line in the financial area. If the games are played with no fans, most teams will at least break even. Think about that. That's how much money is available to the teams via the television contract. They'll break even with no fans attending, which is crazy to think about. And if they don't break even, their losses won't be huge losses. But think of the other side of this. Traditionally, after the draft, you have a couple mini camps, organized team activities, as they're called, and then a full-fledged mini camp. So the rookies and veterans get together. Rookies get their playbooks. The coaches get to meet them. They all get to know each other. They Here's your workout regimen. Here's what weight we want you in. There's a lot that goes on. Here's the offense. Here's the defense. Here's the playbook. All of those things that transition a rookie or a new player from a team that they played on before to their new team, it's all about building the culture. We hear about that in Western New York from Sean McDermott all the time. The culture, it starts in the OTAs and it grows in minicamp, and then it becomes part of training camp. This year, there will be no OTAs. There will be no minicamp. Training camp? Traditionally, training camp is about a six-week thing. There are four preseason games that go on. Now, I don't believe we'll have more than one preseason game this year. I don't know when training camp begins. I don't foresee a six-week training camp. If you're going to try to start the season on time, which traditionally it'll begin the first Sunday after the Labor Day weekend, this year it'd be September 13th. If you're going to start at then, that means training camp has to start before August 1st. Do we think at this point, looking ahead, that we're going to be ready for these players and teams to mass assemble assemble and, and take care of training camp in just a couple of months? I, I think that's out of the question at this point. Here's the other part of it. Here in Rochester, we hold the Bills training camp at St. John Fisher, have for quite some time. It's a great opportunity for the fans of Rochester and even Syracuse to not have to travel so far, to be able to see the Bills up close. As a member of the media, I've been granted access for the last three or four years to go to training camp. And it's great as somebody who talked about them every day on the radio to be able to watch the players, how they interact in camp, what they show you in camp. I'm no football scout, football expert, but you can see things because they're very obvious between players. This guy can do that. That guy can do this. This guy can't do anything. And, and by and large, it plays out over time because you're watching the same guys do the same things day after day. That's not going to happen this year. And likely in Rochester, it may never happen again. The Pagulas in PSE have a contract with St. John Fisher that runs through 2021 to hold their training camp at St. John Fisher. This has been in question for the last couple of years as camps have gotten shorter and shorter. Last year, there were eight open practices at St. John Fisher, 10 overall. There were only, there were no night practices for the first time ever. Now, the night practice thing may not be a big deal to us fans, but to the marketing department, it's huge. Sponsors of training camp would often have their big customers come out for night practices. And then they'd get an opportunity to see the players up close, to get an opportunity for autographs for the, the customers' kids. It was a very good way to do business. 
Well, that's likely not going to happen anymore with Sean McDermott running the Bills practice schedule. They're not going to practice at night. He's a man who doesn't want that sideshow. Rex Ryan loved it, loved the limelight. Sean McDermott doesn't. It's about getting your work in, and that's all he cares about. So it's been a question as to when will the Pagulas stop having training camp here in Rochester? When will they go to Buffalo? Because they've built this new Ad Pro training facility, which is state-of-the-art. They put two new grass fields in beside it. It is a great, great facility and one that will host their training camp in years to come. I'm confident of that. They like to control things. They also like money. They'll make more money having training camp in their own backyard than they will bringing it here. At the time that the Bills came to St. John Fisher around the year 2000, it was a great move. They regionalized the marketing of the franchise. Well, that no longer is necessary. It's already been done. That work was done, and now moving the Bills back to Buffalo will make a whole lot more sense for the Pagulas to do. And it's just one of those things that I think this situation that we're in is going to provide a very convenient out for PSE and the Bills to move training camp, however abbreviated it may be this year, to the Ad Pro, Ad Pro facility next to the stadium in Buffalo. So certainly changes ahead with training camp and changes ahead at the end of the season as well. The NFL, for the first time in 30 years, voted this week to add another playoff team to each conference beginning at the end of this year. That means seven playoff teams from each conference now go forward. 14 of the 32 teams in the league will make the playoffs. 43.8% of the playoffs. In my opinion, that's too many. Look, I like the fact that they're adding a playoff team because I think it gives us, the fans, something really special to look at. When you look at the wild card weekend now, traditionally wild card weekend was four games. You had, you had eight teams playing, you had two games Saturday, two games Sunday. Well, now it's going to be different. Now, that wild card weekend is going to jump up by another game on each conference. There's going to be six games on that weekend. Think about that on a Saturday. You've got a game at one, a game at four, and a game at eight. You do the same thing on Sunday, and they're playoff games. It's about as good of a weekend of football as you'll ever have as a fan. I think that's great. I also think that there's a huge advantage for the team that gets the bye. There's only one bye now. There used to be two. There will be one now. One team from each conference that gets the bye has a huge advantage going forward. So, yes, there's something to like. But when you look at the teams that are getting in, basically you're adding a team that's going to be a 500 team or slightly above. Last year in the AFC, the Steelers at 8-8 eight and eight would have been a playoff team. The Rams in the NFC at 9-7 and seven would have been a playoff team. The year before, the Vikings 8-7-1, and one, the Steelers again 9-6-1. and one. Yes, you're adding a team, but are you adding a team that's going to be a team that's got a chance to go all the way? That's the question I have. Are you actually making the playoff tournament better? 
or are you just giving us fans another game to watch? One thing I don't buy about this, and I don't think will happen, is it's going to change the end of the season. And as we go forward into next year, when the season goes from 16 to 17 games, the thought with the extra playoff team is, at the end of the season, you get better games. I don't think that's the case. There's going to be one or two teams now that aren't eliminated that might sneak into that seventh spot. But I think the opposite may be true as well. You're now going to have teams that don't have a chance at a bye because there's only one bye. And those teams are now going to rest their players more because there's less incentive for them to play the final week or two of the season. I actually think it's going to go the opposite way and it's going to hurt the end of the season product more than it'll help it. Now, I got to confess, generally when the NFL makes changes, I don't think they're good changes because I'm a big fan of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the NFL seems to get it right. The extra point rule, which has become a great addition to the NFL game, was one that I thought was an absolutely terrible decision. And look at it now. It's a fantastic decision. So NFL making noise in a time when no other league seems to be doing a whole lot of anything. Switch gears right now to college basketball. College basketball season ended abruptly in the midst of conference tournaments, and there's a lot of players now that are entering the transfer protocol, the transfer portal, I should say. A lot of speculation about who's going pro. And here in Rochester, one of our local kids, and I love it when our local kids do well, made a decision yesterday to go pro. Isaiah Stewart played a couple years at McQuay Jesuit before going on to prep school, played this past season at the University of Washington. Isaiah is a true throwback big man, in my opinion. 6'9", long arms, big physical body, averaged 17 points a game, shot 57% almost nine rebounds and over two blocks a game. Isaiah talked about going pro earlier this week. You know, I just showed up every game, and um, I did everything I can to help my team win. And you know, although we didn't have the season that everybody expected us to have, uh, I'm so happy I chose University of Washington. Playing the way I played, I felt like I learned a lot of things, you know, being double teamed every night. I'm going to bring it every day. Um, I'm someone you can count on. Um, I'm someone you don't have questions about. So I feel like I can go as the highest pick in the draft. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I can't go number one when, you know, I work my tail off. So I feel like I can go and be a number one pick. So that is Isaiah Stewart talking about his decision to go pro. He will be a first-round pick. I, I think Isaiah will likely be somebody who goes in the late teens, early 20s in the draft, and whoever drafts them will get a player that's going to help their team. Al Horford is a guy who I look at that Isaiah Stewart may be like, or an Elton Brand if you're a little bit older and could go back to that. Maybe not a true five in terms of center, but certainly a four that can play down low, can be physical, rebound, play defense, But here's the other thing. Isaiah shot 75% from the free throw line. He's got a nice touch as a shooter. Now that he's going pro, 
they will work on his jump shot and they will try to get him the new way of basketball. Big shoot threes. He's going to his pro career, the success of it is going to be determined on how well he learns to shoot the three. This is a kid who can play at all levels. He can dribble the basketball, he can bring it up, go coast to coast, he can finish. He's got nice inside power game offensively, can rebound, defend, as I said. But the shooting, it's something that's a work in progress. I think he'll get it. He's a great kid. A 3-7 GPA while at Washington says something to me. And he now becomes the second Rochesterian in the NBA. Thomas Bryant will have well finished his third year this year with the Washington Wizards. Bryant's become a solid contributor and starter in the middle of the Wizards lineup. So it's great to see two Rochester kids playing in the NBA. And you start to look at it, there are potentially a couple others that could end up in the NBA. Not likely to be drafted, but they're guys who are going to get paid to play basketball. They'll likely get an opportunity if there is a summer league if there is something like that training camp, they'll get this call. Now, Isaiah Carter, eventually. He, he's going to probably go another year at the University of Washington. He was Isaiah Stewart's teammate. An athletic freak. We see his highlight film dunks all the time. He's going to make money playing basketball. And he's got the body and athleticism that may eventually lead him back at some point to the NBA. Anthony Lamb has had an unbelievable career at the University of Vermont. Lamb, who led Vermont to the NCAA tournament each of the last couple of years, is the two-time America East Player of the Year. Maybe he's a bit undersized, but I wouldn't bet against this kid. I remember watching him up close, a game I refereed, in a sectional semifinal while he was at Greece Athena. He scored the last 18 points of the game to force overtime including making three free throws with about a second left. The kid wasn't going to lose that night, and I would never bet on him to lose because he's just that kid. The Metro Atlantic player of the year is Jalen Pickett, a kid from Siena. A little bit of a throwback game. He was mentioned as a potential draft prospect before the season. Jalen Pickett is somebody to keep an eye on in a couple of years. He's only played two years for Siena. Quentin Rose at Temple is a second-team all-AAC guy for the last couple of years. He's got an NBA body. He's a 6'8 two-guard, incredibly athletic. He'll get a look. And there's another kid that we always tend to forget about when we have this discussion because of where he plays. Keith McGee is in New Mexico. Keith McGee is an athletic freak, not big in stature, maybe 6'1", 6'2", can jump out of the gym, can really shoot it, He's a heck of a player and another kid who's going to get an opportunity eventually to make money playing basketball. It's great to see that we have two NBA players and the five kids I just mentioned who have a chance at some point maybe to get a tryout, if nothing more. This may be the golden age of basketball at the highest level in Section 5 here in Rochester. I think it's fantastic. You talk about the highest level and how great it is for basketball, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw this out there. The Hobie Baker finalists, the college hockey Heisman Trophy, if you will, were announced last week. Two Rochester kids 
were on the finalist list, the 10 person list. Jack Dugan from Providence, who led the NCAA in scoring this year, he helped bring Providence to the NCAA championship game as a freshman last year. Dugan this year leads the nation in scoring. He's a draft pick of the Las Vegas Knights. I'm not sure whether or not Dugan will leave Providence and turn pro. There's so much uncertainty now with all the things that are going on with the virus and its effect on sports. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question, but certainly a kid to keep an eye on. Then there's David Farron, who's a Nashville draft product. He's out of Boston University. He's one of the top defensemen in college hockey. He's a kid from Victor. These two young men are going to be playing at least in the AHL in a couple of years and possibly in the NHL as well. And you think about that, to have two players in the NBA, two players in the NHL. Ernie Clement is working his way up through the Indian system, has a chance to get to the, to the Indians roster at some point. That's a possibility. It's just a golden time in Rochester for our young men doing great, great things at the next level. And me as a sports fan could not be prouder of all of these young men and what they've accomplished. So cheers, boys. Keep up the great work and uh, keep, keep, keep making us all proud. There is a recency bias in basically everything that we do. When you're talking about the best food you've ever had, it's likely the most recent great meal that you had. When you're a young kid, you, you always remember the most recent thing and how great it was. You forget how good the past was. Well, ESPN, in an effort to kill time or maybe fill time, better way to say it, decided to have an all-time a poll for the all-time greatest college basketball player. Michael Jordan won that poll. He beat out Larry Bird as the all-time greatest college basketball player. And those two names are very worthy of the discussion. I watched Michael Jordan play. We're the same age. Jordan, when I first saw him at Carolina as a freshman, his athleticism and the way he played stood out. And it was long before he hit the shot against Georgetown to help win the national championship game. It was early December in a game against Maryland when I first saw him play and was awestruck by what I saw. Jordan was a great college player. He played on a great college team. Those Carolina teams in the early 80s with Sam Perkins and James Worthy, Brad and Matt Doherty, Kenny Smith, talent galore. They won a championship. There was a great era of college basketball. We know all about the Big East. But the ACC was great back then, too. Ralph Sampson at Virginia, Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. That was the golden age of college basketball. And MJ was as good as anybody playing the game at that time and probably better than all of them. He was a great college basketball player. But the greatest of all time? I don't even think he belongs in that discussion, frankly. I love Michael Jordan. I do think he's the greatest basketball player of all time pro without a doubt but Larry Bird was the person who lost this recency bias competition Bird's career at Indiana State averaged 30.3 points a game 13.3 rebounds a game 
and 4.6 assists. Those were his career averages for the three years he spent at Indiana State. What people forget about Larry Bird is he actually started out his college career at Indiana. He was going to play for Bobby Knight. But the heck from French Lick was overwhelmed by the size of Indiana. And one afternoon, grabbed his basket of clothes, and there wasn't much more than a basket of clothes, went out to the highway, stuck his thumb out, jumped in the back of the pickup truck, and hitchhiked his way back to French Lick. He ended up at Indiana State in Terre Haute, and the fit was much better. And he brought that team to the championship game, only to lose to Magic Johnson and Michigan State in that championship game. Bird was an all-timer. And MJ, again, great. Neither of them belong in this competition. You want to discuss the greatest college basketball player of all time? There are two names you can argue. And either way you want to go with it, I'm fine with your argument. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Lou Alcindor, when he was at UCLA, played only three years. Freshmen weren't allowed to play during that time. He averaged 26.4 points per game, 15.4 rebounds, and won three championships. Not bad. It's pretty consistent. He was a three-time All-American, three-time player of the year. He did literally everything you could possibly do as a college basketball player. There was nothing more Kareem Abdul-Jabbar could have done to better his resume at a college basketball player other than not miss a shot, which we all know that's not possible. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has to be one of the two names mentioned. The other name, which I haven't heard a whole lot of pushback on Burton Jordan with this name, and it just confounds me because to me, this would be my pick. Pete Maravich, who played at LSU back in the late 60s. Another player who he didn't play for four years because freshmen weren't allowed to play, played three years at LSU. And with Maravich, I think it's worth noting they didn't have a three-point line. As a matter of fact, Pete Maravich never had a three-point line in the NBA until his last season. One of the great stats of all time is that when he played a half a season to finish his career with the Boston Celtics, the first year of the three-point line in the NBA, Maravich was done at that point. Injuries had taken their toll on the, on the man. Was 10 for 15 for his career from three-point range. 10 for 15, 66%. Pretty good. Maravich at LSU, though, averaged 44.2 points per game. Let me say that again. For his career, averaged 44.2 points per game. As a sophomore in the 67-68 season, he averaged 43.8 points per game. He averaged 7.5 rebounds per game that year and four assists. Think about that. There was no three-point line. We're talking about averaging, what, 50 at least? His sophomore year, his scoring actually went up a little bit, 44.2 points per game. The rebounds down to 6.5, but the assists went up to 4.9 assists per game. And then his senior year, 44.5 points per game, 5.3 rebounds, 6.2 assists per game. For his career, 44.2 points per game, 6.4 rebounds per game, and 5.1 assists per game. Three-time consensus All-American. He was the player of the year, his senior year. What more 
other than be in a better program and have a chance to win, could Pete Maravich have done? It's unreal to me that the voters, which again, recency bias, would not be a little bit more more intelligent, do some research. The final bracket should have been Kareem Abdul-Jabbar against Pete Maravich. And then if you wanted to argue that one, that's a great one to discuss. I don't know what the right answer is, and frankly, I don't think there is one, but I know this. They're hell of a players, both of them. And as a Niagara alum, I have to throw this out. Calvin Murphy's 33 points per game in average. That's worth noting as well. So definitely the voters got it wrong, but again, recency bias. The NFL is looking to hold their draft. Major League Baseball is on hold. The NHL and NBA, they don't know what they're going to do. But I think that decision was made for them this week by the people north of the border. Toronto has canceled all mass gatherings. Take a listen. Today, Dr. Davila has laid out a prescription for all of us, and I will do everything in my power to make sure that our city follows that prescription, and in so doing, that we will defeat this deadly virus. I fully support Toronto Public Health issuing mandatory isolation orders for those with COVID-19 under the Health Protection and Promotion Act. We have to make sure that people are not spreading this virus further in our communities. The speed at which this virus has spread in cities around the world, including in New York City, make urgent action mandatory. The Raptors are the second best team in the NBA's Eastern Conference right now. The Leafs, they're the third best team in the NHL Atlantic Division. The Leafs aren't probably a cup contender, but then again, they never are. The Raptors are the defending NBA champions. The city of Toronto has banned public gatherings until June 30th. To me, this is the end of the NBA and NHL. Because if you want to come back and you want to play the remaining portion of the schedules and you want to have a playoff so you can crown a champion, when are you going to do it? Are you going to go into July? Are you going to go into August? Because now you're getting to a point where the playoffs are likely a four- to six-week thing. You're getting to the point where these players are going to continue playing, have a couple weeks off, and then report to training camp in the fall. It's not good for the athletes. And I get that the leagues are going to want to have a champion crown. They're going to want to finish the job that they started. The teams have an opportunity to win. Think of the Lakers with LeBron and Anthony Davis, the Clippers. Of course, we all look forward to that potential Western Conference final. It would have been a great one. I don't think it's going to happen. And frankly, I think this decision by our neighbors to the north might be the final nail in the coffin for the hope of getting the tournament back on track this year. Another what are we going to do with is Major League Baseball. There's no set date, certainly, for the players to get back together and try to pick up spring training when they're going to get things going. But I think it's a little more complicated than just getting things going. Let's listen to Ken Rosenthal, his thoughts on when the season could potentially start. What do you think, given what we know now, 
the likelihood that when baseball returns, it will be played in front of empty stadiums? I would say that likelihood, Robert, is increasing based on everything we know right now. The president announcing restrictions will remain in place through April 30th. We know the CDC has recommended against gatherings of 50 people or more through May 10th. So when the sport comes back, yes, it will probably be after that. At this point, we know that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that the crisis will be over. At some point, baseball is going to face a decision. And the decision will be, do we prefer to play in empty parks or not at all? And my guess would be, and it's rather an educated guess, empty parks, because at least you could be on television and get your sport back into the public mainstream. So that's Ken Rosenthal talking about what he thinks is going to happen. And while I tend to agree with him, I have questions about this as well. So let's say mid-May, we all get the go-ahead to go back to our lives to a degree. And that means Major League Baseball would get an opportunity to then get back to work. It's going to take five or six weeks, and they better be careful because you'll have more Tommy John injuries and more injuries to players because, again, getting players back built up. That's what spring training is about in Major League Baseball. Get players built back up so they're ready to go. We're talking July. If they plan to play late into the season, the Northeast isn't great for baseball past mid-October. And even then, it's somewhat dicey. There is talk about, well, maybe they could play to the end of November. I don't know if they realize what it's like in the Northeast, but Minnesota has an outdoor stadium and a pretty good team. Imagine December-ish playing a baseball game in Minneapolis. And then there's talk of, well, we could always play neutral sites. I don't think that's a great idea, and I don't think it works. And I understand that all of these leagues are trying to figure out how to salvage A, their season, B, their income. And it's probably in reverse order to what I just said. The money's the thing. And if they could put it on TV, they get the television revenue. But they also need to be smart about it. And then there's another fact. Think of, we here in Rochester, we have the Red Wings, the AAA team of the Minnesota Twins. How many players get called up, sent down through the course of a year? With the major league team playing in an empty stadium, that's one thing. The injuries are going to happen in baseball and all sports. Are you going to have the the farm teams ready to go as well. How does that work? I, I know we're in unprecedented times, and I understand that the people running the sports have decisions to make. But when you start to look at the health of the players, and think about next season. When would you begin next season? Because if you're playing until November or December, that means pitchers only get a couple months off to recuperate before they have to get back after it in spring training. I think we would see more injuries next season because of the shortened off season, the prolonged this season. I just think it's a recipe for disaster long-term. And I think one or two of these leagues are going to have to make a decision that nobody wants to be made. The decision that their season is over. The decision that we're not going to crown a champion. We're not going to play this year. I understand it's another thing that we're all going to have to accept that we don't want to, but it just 
is probably the best for the long-term good of the sport. And I think that's where the leaders need to be focused, not on this year, long-term. Because if you get players injured and you ruin careers of the players that you would sell to the public over the next couple of years, you're doing a huge detriment to your sport. So many tough decisions coming in all sports. Well, that's it. Episode four of Falcon Around, the Carl Falk podcast in the books. Make sure you check us out, pass it along, and hit me up on Twitter, Carl Falk 2 and I'll be happy to talk about things you want to talk about going forward. You have some ideas, questions, like I say, hit me up. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.